0: Now, Rock Talk with Mitch Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Joining me on the phone it is a former Yes singer, John Anderson. He is back with a new album called Thousand Hands, Chapter One. And if it sounds familiar, yes, the album was originally released in March of 2019, and we did an interview at that time. But but it is being re-released, or in at the end of July. Well, now basically. And so we do uh, interview part two. And on the phone, as always, it is uh, the one, the only, the affable and huge KISS fan, Alan Niven. Bonjour.
1: Bonjour. Did you say affable or affable?
0: Uh, I said uh, affable. Oh, yes,
1: that's the one.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, surprise. Yes. John Anderson. Yes. Sweet one name. says, yes, sweet what a great name man. for a band. What a great name for a, a disposition about life in general, and uh, this this record has got a, an an incredible um, contribution and lineup. Um, yeah, the cast of characters uh, is is cast of characters, but I I got to tell you, um, my favorite John Anderson record, has got nothing to do with Yes, and it is uh, something that he did with someone else. He made a record in the 90s, early 90s, called Dream with a Japanese artist called Kitaro. And if you're into Yes and you're into John Anderson's voice and if you know Kitaro and if you don't know the record, it's an absolute must have. Well,
0: I'm, I'm actually not very familiar with that record. And in fact, as I'm looking through his discography, I can't. Oh, here it is. Uh, John Anderson discography. Uh, I'm, what was it called? Deseo
1: to see you dream it's called dream and it. it's John Anderson and and Kitaro
0: hmm well, i don't see it on his anyway but uh, i'm i'm glad because it is uh John is always always uh pleasant i mean he he is just such a great voice and such a great character and uh, this new album as you were mentioning there there is a cast of characters on it i mean l- listen to this we've got Jean-Luc Ponty uh Chick Corea Jonathan Kane Chris Squire, Rick Derringer, Sturt Ham, Alan White, Larry Coryell, Steve Howe, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, just just a wonderful, wonderful collaborative
1: effort by all of them. John John Anderson always struck me as being a um, a very positive spirit. You know, there's something kind of elf-like about him, and he was sort of the positive spirit, and he always had the sense that. That was the motivation behind his creativity and his mu- musical exploits. And uh, you know, when I read on on the computer that uh, various bands are taking what is referred to as PPPP or whatever, um, you kind of wonder if that indicates what drives them and their motivations. I mean, I have to say that I think it's a little on the nose. For certain bands, like whose names I won't mention, like Guns N' Roses, taking a million dollars of taxpayer money um, because they didn't make that much in the previous two years, circling the globe (laughs) and extracting every dime out of every promoter that they could bend over a table. Um, I mean, come on, guys, you know, look after your own and let the taxpayer dollars go to who it should go to. It was like that guy who was uh, appealing for people to put money into his restaurant. And then you find out that his name being German Otter, that he is directly related to a superstar called Lady Gaga. Uh, Maybe your daughter might help you out rather than you taking taxpayer dollars. I mean, come on, people. Where's your social conscience? You don't have to be a pure positive spirit like John Anderson, but you don't have to be a parts either.
0: Let me, let me, and I don't want to play devil's advocate, but I just want to throw out the questions, and I'm not uh, challenging you on this, but I just want to know, you know, when you're a band, uh, Guns N' Roses, Sammy Hagar is another one who took some of the money, and they have their own personal fortune, but they run these entities as companies. You know, it's Guns N' Roses, Inc., it's Sammy Hagar, Inc., or, you know, it's probably, they have probably have more creative names let than that.
1: Let me stop you right there. right. Okay. Let me stop you right there. Just because you form an LLC, and I will guarantee that these PPP payments, these bands are taking, uh, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if it's the same accounting firm handling it all, taking their ten percent and doing the paperwork and and driving the uh, the paperwork through the government offices, uh, so that they get their little commission or their ten percent commission. Million dollars, that's a lot of 10% right there, um, just because you have a company that doesn't absolve you from a sense of the appropriate or the sense of being cool or the the sense of having a social awareness. If you've got parts and parts of money, don't you feel a bit bad about taking money that could go to lots of little businesses? that really need it. And there are plenty of people who are not getting their unemployment. There are plenty of people who have been left short of government help. But armed with a great accounting firm, these, these bands can go in there and get their money. And they're sitting on piles. It just speaks of greed. I used to work with this band whose bass player was a devout punk. He was all about righteousness um, I wonder what he did with his share of the million dollars. If you can look after your own people, you look after your own people. And if you can look after and contribute to society by not taking monies that can be used by people who really need it, then you do it. You don't just stick your hand out like an L.A. greed head. Well, okay.
0: Yes, I, I fully agree. And again, I'm just going to try to play some devil advocate just for, the, for, for, for conversation's sake. But you look at Sammy Hagar and he's probably got merchandisers and computer guys and and roadies and and you're probably looking down at 1000 you know
1: tequila company for uh, like
0: 120 million or
1: something. something yeah. <laughs> something like that. I mean exactly. Yes, but is it up to how sort of How much is enough? Well, Here's that's the true. point. How how much is enough? Now I'm saddled with the fact that I'm an old curmudgeon. And being an old curmudgeon... I was a little bit aware during a period of time when there was a magical sense of social revolution in the air. Um, There was even a song called Something in the Air by Thunderclap Newman that kind of described the sensation and the moment. And people like uh, Graham Nash were writing songs like We Can Change the World. What a delightful and naive attitude he had. But, you know, in that moment, there was a sense that the world could be changed and people's consciousness could evolve and grow a little bit, and that people would be a little less self-serving, a little less fearful, a little less greedy. But it appears to me now that, no, the magic bus doesn't run anymore. Ken Kesey's bus is rotting in the woods, and we're back to double take the high most, let let die. Yeah, and I, I want I'm, mine.
0: Uh, I'm reading it in front of me here. That so the PPP uh, program for those that don't know, because in Canada I don't really know what it is. It's a, it's an American thing, but it is the Paycheck Protection Program. And yep. here is a list of bands receiving at least a hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is which is a you know, a man for, for, it's for, Listen, oh, for
1: some. Listen, for some people please.
0: that's three, four, or five years' salary. You
1: know, Yes. Just, just locally, while these guys have got their hands stretched out, and God knows that they've got enough pillowcases that they can stuff another million dollars under their bed and under their mattress. But, for example, I know of a small local company that handles rentals. And people aren't paying their rent, and that means income is not coming in, and they still have to do maintenance uh, maintenance for them the other day included removing a suicide from one of their residences, and these people can't get a penny out of PPPP. But but some of these bands are the, poor. The, for, let this, me look but, at this but, list. But, but, Come on, let's uh, let's do this list. Twenty for Slash to go and buy another Lamborghini. I mean, I just I just think it's egregious, and if I were advising musicians. Of success, I'd be saying, for God's sake, how much is enough? I mean, you know, the famous David Geffen answer when he was asked, How much is enough? and he turned around and said, I want it all. Well, you know, he sent the world the biggest fuck you you could imagine by taking a drone picture of his yacht, swanning around in the Caribbean, saying he's safe.
0: That's my favorite COVID moment. That was so yes,
1: obnoxious ab- was absolutely so- <laughs> and i had I had one or two people who were going, well, David oh really didn't understand, and I said, "No, fuck you, David totally understood. I know David to a certain degree, having dealt with him for a while, and that was utterly deliberate. That was the biggest fuck you that he could give to everybody. I win, you die, live and let die
0: <laughs> that was that was that was a very obnoxious moment at at the beginning of this, but let's see, uh, the Eagles took money, which makes sense they're they're poor. Cheap trick. Well, listen, they're they're a theater act, so they they probably needed it. Sammy Hagar. Listen, he's no. a, he's he's all by himself. The poor guy. The poor guy. Guns and Roses, Green Day. Oh, here's the one that offends me, and I, I'm actually offended by this name, Pearl Jam. These, god, god socialist baiting, blah blah blah. We're all for the people, fuckers. And then they they're like, oh, free money from the government. Excuse me, Pearl Jam. Fuck off. Uh, no offense. Uh, Nickelback took some. And people go, aren't they Canadian? It's like, yeah, but they probably have a Delaware corporation. Anyway, uh, Slipknot, yep, Disturbed, you know, so, Seven Dust. Well, Seven Dust, I can understand. Seven. To be fair, Seven Dust is probably not rolling in millions and millions of dollars, and they probably do. You, need a, do you
1: know what? It, do you know what I'd find curious? Pearl Jam. I'd find. I know I'd find it curious to find to know how many of these people share an accountant, because to me, this is I, I think is as much accountant driven that they picked up the phone and said, we can make this claim on your behalf. And they're taking their commission on it. And I would be very curious to know how many of them share an accountant.
0: And uh, just uh, just uh, looking at the news here, it says that the arts, entertainment, and recreation industry as a whole received 1.53% of all PPP loans. Mm. So, there you go. So, 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 so 2% of the bundle went to... to be, uh, I mean, you know, uh, God. Anyway, uh, let us get over to John Anderson, because... Uh, yeah, he, because there's a, a he, there's a positive... There's a positive. I'm willing...
1: I'm, I'm willing to bet you that if somebody turned around to John Anderson and said, do you want some PPP, whether he needed it or not, he would have said no. Yeah. Let yeah. it go to people who really need it.
0: Yes, and I found the album Dream. It's actually an album by Kataro that featured yes. uh, vocals by John Anderson. I was looking in the John Anderson discography going, is Alan, is Alan wrong? Did he did he Is he thinking of a different... <laughs> But no, here it Am is. Am I it, ever
1: wrong? No,
0: not in this case. It says, uh, Dream is an album by Japanese New Age mus- musician Kitaro, released in Japan in 1992 and re-released uh, in 1997 on, guess what? Geffen Records. Geffen, <laughs> Geffen Records, Yep. So there you go. Uh,
1: I, I, I introduced Kitaro to um, Tom Soutout. Uh, actually even before he worked at Geffen. So that was how Ge- th- Ge- Geffen were aware of who Kitaro was. Kitaro made extraordinary music, but uh, yeah, John Anderson and Kitaro, great record. If you don't have it, find it.
0: Go buy it, yeah, and it's been re-released, so it, it should be available. If not, check out Discogs.com. That's where I go for all my hard-to-find records. But here he is, the one, the only, one of my favorites, John Anderson. We are speaking with uh, the one and only John Anderson. The uh, new album is One Thousand Hands, uh, Chapter One. And as we say in Montreal, Bonjour, Monsieur Anderson. Comment allez-vous? How
2: are you? Very, 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 very good. Thank you very much. Uh, always a pleasure
0: <laughs> to talk to you. You know, we we spoke about this album one uh, One Thousand. I keep wanting to say One Hundred, but One Thousand Hands uh, last year. It is being reissued Uh, later this year Uh, talk to me about this album and what makes it so special that you you, you believe so much in it that you want to just make sure that it gets out there and that it gets the right push instead of just saying okay we gave it a shot in 2019 let's make a new album for 2020 um there's a great passion for this album that you have
2: well it took a few years to to actually finish the album and uh it really felt like there's something about the tour we did, which we never got to Canada, which is really heartbreaking for me, because I only tour if I can go to Canada. And, of course, this time we stayed in America last year. And uh, it was great working with these musicians who all live in uh, Orlando. And they're, they're sort of session musicians, and they're beautiful people, and they loved doing the show. And that's how the battle is, when the musicians really enjoy themselves. And performing the new songs, the audiences were great, and I just thought, well, let's just put it back out in the midsummer this year. And uh, we got a record company to help promote it. And uh, the usual thing, you know, it's, it's you make music in order to to reach people and and, and give people uh, some enjoyment. And uh, this is what this album does to me still after. Can you imagine it was 30 years ago I started recording uh, two thirds of the songs, and uh, it's just an, a, a magical feeling to to know that people are getting the chance to hear it again, or, or you know, to be able to chance to get re released. Never been done before, but why not?
0: Why why not? Indeed. Okay. So so let's talk a little bit about its history because you you did mention that it has this 30 years sort of in the making process. Was it always sort of seen as a whole, where you had this album in mind and it just took time? Because, you know, you were touring with, uh, with Yes and you were doing solo albums, and you were doing other stuff. Was it always this one sort of piece of work that you saw? Or are these songs sort of stitched together where you had a little bit here and a little bit there? Is it a complete effort in a sense? You know what I'm saying? And I'm not trying to be disparaging, but... Is it eleven individual tracks that you've had over thirty years, or did you always have a vision of no? These are these songs that make this album.
2: Well, basically, the, the, the two thirds of the album we, we recorded in Big Bear in uh, nineteen ninety, and uh, then, like you said, you know, you go on tour, you carry on doing other work, and I have a stock stopped of ideas and music that just go back 40 years, 50 years, that I'm still trying to get finished. So it's, not, it's nothing wrong with eventually the music being fulfilled and done and, and put out. But it just felt that uh, the songs still lasted uh, so many years on, in, in terms of listening to it in the studio. And then you put uh, you know Billy Cobham on one track and Jean-Luc Ponty on it, same track, called Come Up. And then we added uh, Chick Corea, because he just went around the corner from the studio. And all of a sudden, I think I told you the original idea of the album was to get a lot of people to perform on it that I really respect. And uh, we just managed to get so many great people to to work on the album. And it gives it uh, a a very fulfilling sort of uh, identity as a piece of music, as an album of music. And... uh, I still enjoy listening to it after so many years. So I just hope people get the chance to hear it and we'll see what happens. Yeah, and I
0: agree. And, and I find it interesting that, that you have Steve on there and you have Chris Squire and you have Rick Derringer, and Stuart, uh, Stuart Hamm. And, uh, because they all give a different texture to the to the songs. Instead of being sort of 11 songs made by four guys in a room with all these different uh, players on it, it really adds to the textures and the layers of each song um, Talk to me a little bit about that, and, and, and especially having Alan on there and Chris on there, who have, uh, and of course, well, Chris has passed on. Um, What's it like to have those guys on there?
2: Actually, really, it just happened that when we were first recording in uh, Big Bear up in the mountains near LA, Chris and Alan were in LA, so I just went down with a couple of tracks and said, What are you doing today, guys? Would, would you like to play on this? You know, I will pay you. Lots of money. <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't a lot of money, but it's just the idea that you were excited to play on it. And, uh, and years later, you listen to it and you think, oh, my gosh, you know, Chris, is, his bass harmonies were unique to my singing. With Yes, of course. And Alan White, perfect drumming, and, you know, Alan White played on uh, John Lennon's Imagine album. So we were working with great people anyway. And uh, thankfully they played on the album. The last guy that I put on the album was Steve Howe. And I haven't been in touch with Steve for many years. Uh, we're, you know, we're friends, we're musical friends like brothers. But he, he, he takes his own way of making music. I have my own way of living life. And uh, I just sent him this track called uh, Now and Again, uh, And I just felt it just missed something. And I just said, listen, Steve, if you you have five minutes, just put some guitar on the track. And, uh, you know, because I actually sang on one of his albums and he said he would repay me. That was like 10 years ago. But I sang on his album. And uh, so I said, could you do it? And he said, yeah, I'd love to. So when he played on that track now and again, which is the end track of the album, I couldn't help but want to sing. And sing a little bit about we used to do this all the time, Steve. You know, we were really connected around Fragile, of course, the edge and the great times of the seventies with yes. So it was such an honor to sing with him again.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And I do want to talk about yes, but at some point or before we get there, I wanna talk about Deborah Anderson, your daughter. She she has this documentary, Women of the White Buffalo. Um, one of my Personal friends is is a Mohawk who lives on a reserve here in Quebec, and and so the the story touches me. Um, talk to me a little bit about this this film and and contributing music to it and, and doing the theme song for it, and and what does that mean given the current context of what's going on in the states and what's going on around the world uh, about discrimination and racism and all kinds of stuff? Um, it really is sort of a powerful piece she's put together.
2: It's- Makes me cry every time I watch it. It's like I'm so proud of Deborah because you know we we've obviously connected all the way through our lives together. She sang on nearly all my solo albums, and then up she goes and makes a movie here and a movie there and photographs people here and there. And then all of a sudden, she jumps into that world, which uh, it's a delicate place to go. Really, uh, I was very fortunate in 19. Uh, of course, 1986, I met a, a shaman, a, a beautiful man who lived in East LA called Longwalker. So I went along with this understanding that I was learning and he was teaching. And I spent over two or three months with him on and off. And even went to Copper Canyon with him in uh, Chihuahua in Mexico to uh, realize this spring happening that was going on with the Tamaroonian Indians. And I actually just jumped in headfirst into the belief that I need to know about Native American culture because I, I wasn't taught anything at school in England. And uh, Deborah, bless her, she actually did the same thing 20, 30 years later. She actually went and spent time um, in, 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 that, in that world. And, and I, I said to her uh, just a, a month ago, thank you so much for walking in my footsteps, because she actually did something more about uh, letting people know that we're, we're, we're all Indigenous people when we think about it. And I remember it so clearly how Canada followed in the footsteps of uh, Australia some years ago and asked for forgiveness for the terrible things that uh, the Native Americans were to, gosh, terrible things. America, USA hasn't even got close to that. But, you know, God bless Deborah. She actually made a, an incredible documentary and, and should be seen by as many people as possible. And uh, there you go.
0: Yeah, and I agree. And and I want to take it uh, outside of the, the filmmaking thing, but into the creative process, because I, I find, obviously, that when you have a famous, you know, rock star dad or mother or whatever, the kids often inherit that creative gene and that ability. So were, were you ever drawn to filmmaking? Did you teach her this? And and did she think of having a, a singing career and she went into filmmaking? Cause I, she did sing with you on those solo albums. Um, how did you see that develop in her? I
2: just, I was very, very um, surprised when she, one day, she 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 was complaining to me about we were walking around LA, and she was complaining that she hadn't done anything yet, and she hadn't really got anywhere with her life. And and I said, don't worry, you know, everything will come when you know you just open up your heart and your soul, and things will come to you. And it's up to you to take that step and, and and decide what is good for you. You know, she actually made a movie. She was asked to go and uh, kind of... Do photographs with these porn stars in LA, and she went with her to take photographs, and finished up making a documentary about them because she was so enamored by their wonder, energy, their 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 love of life, and the way they have to live, and all this kind of thing. And she made this uh, movie documentary. Um, I can't remember the name of it now, but it'll pop up in my head. But the fact that she went ahead and did that and then did some uh, filmmaking for her friends. And she'd always send me a quick uh, minute or two of what she was doing. And I just said, just open up and it'll come to you. And of course it evolved into this uh, wonderful, powerful uh, documentary she's made now. So it's just one of those things. My my son makes music every day and sends me emails he lives in London. Uh, my youngest daughter is the most beautiful singer in the world, but she has three beautiful boys now. So <laughs> she hasn't got time to sing. I was talking to her just last week about her, you know, open up and sing every day. And she said, and she got her piano working, so she's going to do that. I said, good for you. Some, you know, children are a blessing anyway, and uh, you learn from your children. And everybody knows that, any any father, uh, family, family. People don't know but you learn from your children because they teach you who, who you truly are. You
0: know. Yeah, they they really do. Uh, let me talk to you about also the the songwriting process. How do you approach songwriting now? Now the songs on a thousand hands, as we know, have have been sort of uh, gestating for for thirty years. But how do you approach songwriting now? Because when you look back to to fragile, or when you look back to the early. Yes, there certainly was a sound, and then when we get to uh, "Owner of a Lonely Heart," it's certainly more—I don't want to say pop, but it's certainly more radio-friendly. How do you approach song radio, songwriting now in 2020?
2: Every day I write a song. Every day I write music. Um, it's in my nature to want to do really important things for me. Very—I I always say the great music is coming, you know. And uh, I saw a video of. Uh, jacob collier in montreal and i said that's the guy that's the beginning of the next level of people in music and it's true that there are great young musicians out there just and they're going to make it work because you know they don't need record companies in the sense you know they don't need big business behind because they can put out their music on the internet and that's what i do all the time in my mind i'm working on about four or five projects at the same time and uh Yesterday, I got very sort of bogged down trying to figure out what I was doing because <laughs> I just realized that I, was, I, I wasn't I was finishing anything. So I've got this uh, this momentum this morning was to finish something. And then a friend of mine sends me uh, some music of uh, the great piano player. I've got to see him, Let's check him out on the internet. Now, one second. And he sends me this, uh, I've got some music from, uh, here he is, um, wait a second. Um, And I'm singing on his music now. So it's this guy, Bruce Ornsby, who plays incredible piano. You know, he's one of the great piano piano players. So I've just been this morning singing on his uh, piano playing, And I've lost my train of thought. What I was going to do today was just get organized and try and get something finished on a large-scale project, which is the son of Elias. It's called Zamran. Son of Elias. I must have about three hours of music and I can't seem to piece it together correctly and I've got three or four different versions of the story. The storyline is very, very exciting to me, but the music is uh, it's too big. <laughs> so, you know, when it comes down to just writing songs, you know, you don't think about, oh, I need to have a hit record because in the old days with yes, uh, you know, I was reading a documentary about, or watching a documentary about Close to the Edge yesterday, just people talking about it. And I realized that at that moment in time, having a hit record was the last thing in our mind. Well, last thing in my mind, that's for sure, because we were on the verge of different experiences in music and uh, I was very, very fortunate to be surrounded by such great musicians as Steve and Rick and Chris and Bill Bruford. And then after we finished Close to the Edge, Bill Bruford left the band. It kind of freaked me out. (laughs) And that's what life is all about, you
0: know? Well, life is about changes. Well, okay, so let me ask you that. How did the the lineup changes affect the band for you? Were you one of these guys that sort of saw yes as or any band that you were in as here are the, whatever, you know, the four horsemen and we're going into battle or did the changes in lineups go like, Hey, this guy's got new ideas. This, we're bringing in a fresh perspective. How how did you feel about lineup changes?
2: Yeah, I think that was, that was it. I've always said the same thing because we weren't from the same city. we We were all from different parts of England. We met in London we had no real family ties like, Oh, we've got to stick with the band, like the animals or the hollies or the people, you know. You don't you don't do that when you're in a big city, you just work with whoever's available. And that's what happened, that we would we actually started rehearsing yes in this uh cellar under, um, underneath a cafe called the Lucky Horseshoe Cafe. And we started off and there was five of us and then the day after the drummer left to go and join a band, he was going to get paid, which was kind of cool. So we had to look for a drummer, we found Bill Bruford. And, you know, we only hired Bill Bruford because he said he had a lovely kit. (laughs) Because, you know, if he has a lovely kit, he must be able to play, you know? (laughs) Anyway, as time went along, you know, people would not come up to rehearsals or get more involved in being a, a... the star of the show or something, dislocated members of the band somehow. And, you know, me and Chris would look at each other and say, Hey, you know, we, we need to get uh, a, a different keyboard player here because, you know, it's not happening. And I say, yeah, I agree. So it wasn't always my idea to ask people to leave or get rid of them. You know, it was always a collective within the band that said, you know, we got to." what are we going to do now? Bill has just left the band and Eddie Offord, who was our engineer at that time, said, look, I know, I know this guy, uh, Alan White. And we all looked at each of them and said, I mean, Alan White, who played on Imagine? And he said, yeah. And I think he'd like to join the band. So it just happened. And within three weeks, he was on tour with us. So Things are things happen when you're not least expecting, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and and I think at this point, some would argue that Alan is Yes's drummer in the sense that he's the defining sound, and, and, and it's it's amazing because a lot of times fans will go, "Oh, we want the original lineup." Oh, we, and yet you look at Alan, and it's like, no, he's he's the guy. That's that's the guy we want. Um, I want to ask you about yeah. uh, uh, open. In 2011, you put out this EP, this, this masterful piece of, I guess, you know, 20, 25-minute work. And at the yeah. time, you had described it as, I am writing more in the Yes style of music, uh, which suggests two things. It suggests, A, that you had stopped writing Yes style music for a while. And I, and I need to know, why would you do that? And also, what sort of said in 2011, hey, you know what? All right, let me let me go back to what makes Yes style music. And so, what is Yes style music? Talk to me a little bit about that that moment or that epiphany in 2011.
2: Well, it just happened that I was playing my guitar, um, acoustic guitar that I have, and uh, I was writing this idea, and then I had an introduction idea, which was very sort of uh, Vaughan Williams, who's a great British composer. He had this beautiful chord structure. I tried to emulate it, not exactly the same, but emulate the idea, which led into the next part, and then the next part, and then another part, and then within a couple of three days I'd written this piece, which was 20 minutes long. And I thought, well, this is how I did with well, yes, because I remember dreaming topographic. I remember dreaming uh you know, close to the end. And You know, dreaming the musical concept and having a a middle section with an ocean of energy sound and then the song comes up in the middle, close to the edge of this sort of shape in my head and I just transferred it into the band and Steve was my right hand man with that because he helped to write, he actually wrote the words and the melody to the edge round by the corner and then I wrote down the round by the river. And then let's go to see, change, change the key. See, so we'll finish it back. Another, another chord. Okay, was, you know. And then you do that with, with your musician friend. And all of a sudden we were writing this composition. But that, then the same with Topographic. And then I actually sat down at the piano and started writing a terrible version of The Gates of Delirium because I was interested in being able to write uh, complete work for about 15, 20 minutes long. And that's when I got to open. It was years, years, you know, 30 years later that I sat back and started composing again. And I'm just composing now 4 20-minute works as we speak. And it's, uh, it's an incredible feeling that I'm doing something that I was doing 40 years ago. And it still feels, it's not going to sound like yes. It's just going to sound like what it is. Open doesn't sound like yes. It's just an orchestrated version of of an idea that if I had musicians around me, I would try to recreate um, the yes energy. But then I'd really need Chris and Steve and, you know, and everybody was doing other things 10 years ago, 12 years ago. So open was just an idea that the door was slowly opening to composition. And now I'm sort of deep into composition with this next project, which I don't know what I want to call it, but I just have, actually, you can actually listen to the blueprint. You can actually Google John Anderson um, Joyfulness YouTube. Uh-huh. And there are four... That I
0: that I I created uh, okay. about six months ago. Oh, I, just I w- one second. Of course, you
2: always get the wrong number. You
0: can uh, <laughs> come every yeah. so often. You get the wrong number. Um, <laughs> so so let me just take up on this then. In terms of putting together a new piece of music, and I heard you describe it there. You, you seem very excited and very uh, motivated to get this done. Um. What keeps the excitement and the motivation? Because you, you could just easily go out and put your name on the marquee or, or you know, with uh, Trevor and whoever and just say music of yes. And you, you go do Owner of a Lonely Heart and you play it 10 times and fans would show up. Uh, why is it important to stay creative and stay active and, and make new music and not just sit back and go, eh, I've done 40 years of new music. Now you're just going to hear the hits.
2: Gosh, I would never... I don't think that way. Um, no, I, I'm I'm always mesmerized by artists that keep going um, and keep challenging themselves musically. And I want to be part of that, uh, you know, forward-thinking uh, sort of uh, musician. Like, there are so many. It's not... Uh, it's not not an illogical thing to do. It's, it's a, an artist. You want to create better music. You always want to do something better. You know, you you don't know if it's going to reach as many people, but um, it's just the way the way things are. I, I think I told you the story about Quebec. You know that uh, my album um, did very well in Quebec, which was uh, called um, City of Angels, whereas anywhere else in the world, it didn't really do anything. And, I, and then I found out that it actually did very well in Quebec State Province. And I thought, well, at least somebody liked the album because I thought it was a pretty good album. So when you're working on a long longer form piece, like if you had said, just Google Joyfulness, and there's four of them there with some beautiful visuals from a friend of mine in Ireland called Mike Byrne. And, uh, it's a blueprint, and, and and the more I listen to it, uh, I just put it on a USB and put it in my car, um, and I I'd, I'd drive around listening to it, and I start imagining it being performed with a full orchestra and maybe choir singing some song lyrics, and very much like Open, but here we are many years later that it won't won't, uh, evolve until next year sometime, but I'm actually, I've done my first draft of the four movements. I finished them last week, and it's taken me these three months that we've all been in quarantine to do it every day. And I've really got it all figured out, so that'll be my next project next year, and I don't want to go on tour and just... um, like you say, go, go back and work with, uh, with Rick and Trevor and, and whoever. Uh, no, I, I've I've, got, I've done that, and it was fun, um, but I want to do more new stuff. I don't know why.
0: Well, why not? I mean, uh, when you're 40, 50 years into your career, at some point, you just got to say, I want to do it my way. We've done it the other way, but uh, I, I want to ask you, because you, you said that you're always trying to write better and a better song. And that sort of seems to be the dilemma of a lot of artists. And it's almost like they're tortured, where where you'll have a great selling album in 1976, and you'll go, it's still not the best I've ever done. Do you feel that? I mean, do you look back and say, I still haven't written the best album. I still haven't written the best song. Or do you accept that some of the stuff you've done is classic and timeless, and you're just still writing? I mean, are, are you a tortured artist in that sense, if I can use those words? No. Okay. (laughs)
1: <laughs> very good.
2: Very simply, no, because I know what I went through, involved in creating that, and I'm still going through the same process. It's not like I'm doing anything different. And when I did open, I had a friend of mine who lives locally to do the orchestration, and he's going to work on this bigger project now. Uh, we're still in touch. Um, I'm very open to working with different people. The internet is such an incredible uh, tool to to connect with musicians and work with musicians around the world. And I just sang a children's song for this Indonesian band just uh, last week. They sent me this children's song that they recorded, and I sang harmonies on it and trying to learn Indonesian, which, which I have no idea what I'm singing about, but I, I know it's a children's song. And that's where I live. I'm I'm very very uh, adventurous
0: still. Well, that and that's a good thing. But okay, so let me let me take you back to the first one real quick. Elias, I think I've always said it correctly. Elias of Sunhillo, Sunhillo, Sunhillo. I, I don't Sunhello. know. Sunhillo. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you 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 have fragile. You've got close to the edge. You've got tails. You've got relayer. The band is on this non stop sort of choo choo train. (laughs) Sorry for describing it that way. It just came to me. But you're there. What, where, where, how did you come around and say, hey, you know what? I just want to have a John Anderson voice and I just want to put out these songs that are personal. And uh, did it cause any friction with the band members? Or was it like, oh, good, we all need a break, go do it? Um, How did that? decision come about to say hey i'm just going to step out of the yes thing for a bit and go do a solo album
2: i think it started with steve saying he was going to do a solo album and then i said he was going to do one and chris said he was going to do one and i thought well i better do one as well so i did the i did the opposite of going to a studio and getting musicians and i just said i'm going to do it by myself and then it's a pure solo album and the reason why that happened was one of the first uh, guys who ever worked with us was uh, Tony Colton, who produced uh, "Time and a Word," and we were good friends. He was in a great band called Heads, Hands and Feet, and he came to my house one day around that period of time in '75 when he came in and started playing the piano. As though he, I said, I didn't know you could play the piano. He said, "Oh yeah, I've been, to, I went to music school for three months," and I said that's what I should do. Because I was very limited in terms of guitar or piano. I could just, you know, play the white notes, which was kind of okay. So I thought to myself, that's what I should do. I will lock myself in the garage and learn all these instruments that I've been collecting for the last two years and create an album based on the 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 album cover of uh, Roger Dean with the the ship in in the sky. Uh, I think it's Fragile. And uh, that's what I started to do. And I wrote the story of Elias. And it's the idea, very simple idea, of how music came to the planet from the Pleiades. Uh, This energy came from the Pleiades to the planet. And it's not humans that brought it there, but the uh, de- definitive musical energies, which are the four main energies of music, which is the musical structure, then drums and then uh, bells and additional sounds, and then choir. It's just uh, the way it works. So now I'm working on the Zamran experience, which is the son of Elias. Is that he? When when music came to the planet, the planet Earth was just ready for the ley lines. Now, I don't know if you know much about ley lines. You spell it L-E-Y dash L-I-N-E-S. Ley lines are all all over this planet. They're crystal streams of energy. And where they come together in a sort of like a train station where all these streams of energy come together above ground, you have a sacred site. This is all well-known. And and not that I didn't make it up. I'm just saying that's what I'm trying to negotiate musically: how the streams came together, how did they form? It was a musical energy that made them happen. And uh, so I I could get lost in what I'm talking about now. So that's what I'm doing.
0: Oh boy. Yeah, that, that well, that's good. Well, um, uh, and uh, before we run out of time, uh, just uh, I'll, I'll ask you two more questions, and and we'll see where it goes from there. But um, uh, uh, with everybody running off and doing their solo albums at the time, was that a a needed moment where everybody came back reinvigorated and uh, okay, let's get over, and then eventually we get down the road to to ninety one twenty five, or was it sort of the beginning of fractures? I mean. what... Because sometimes taking a break and doing your own thing feels great. Did, did everybody sort of come back well, and go, yeah, this this is good?
2: It was a good idea to start with. And uh, we have been solidly working for then probably seven years without a break. Real proper break. And we we've done all these albums. And uh, it was ex- exhaustion had set in. And it was, I think it was more Steve mentioned it to Chris and then again to me and said, oh, we're thinking of doing our solo albums. And I just said, okay, that's cool by me. Unfortunately, my album took two months longer than expected because I got very involved in creating this music. And and uh, I don't think they were very happy with me at the end of the, that period. I know they weren't uh, because they, 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 the manager wanted to make more money. He got a, a tour in Japan. I said, you know, guys, I've just spent three months without a break, and I need, I, need, I need two weeks off before we go on tour. And it really it compounded the problem that managers rule by sort of making sure that nobody's happy.
0: <laughs> Conquer and divide.
2: So, Conquer and divide. And, uh, um, I know. So, I learned that one. You so, learned that
0: one. That um, All right, let me... Uh, I see we're at 35 minutes, and we had said we, we, we would stop at 40, so I just want to ask you this, because we, we spoke about Quebec uh, before, and of course, uh, I'll I'll bring it out to Canada. We have an artist back in the 1980s called Gowan. Folks now know him as Lawrence Gowan of Sticks, but... On his, I guess, second album, Great Dirty World, you ended up doing background vocals on some of his greatest songs, including Moonlight Desires. How did John Anderson of Yes, who were massive back in 1985, 86, 87, end up on sort of the local Canadian boys uh, album? And I mean, you know, looking back in 2020, you're like, well, it's Lawrence Gowan of Sticks, calm yourself. But in 1987, he was a local Canadian guy.
2: Well, he, I, he was in the studio. I was working in a studio. Uh, I actually met somebody who had a studio in L.A. I was living in Los Angeles. And so I went to work in the studio. And next door was uh, was the man. And uh, I, he, was re, he was recording a proper album. So I was going to listen to it. And then he said, would you mind singing on it? I said, I'd love to. So I just sang on it. And that was it. I was just like, okay, I'll get on with what I'm doing next door. And nice to see you, man. Take care. Of that kind of thing. And uh, And I think it's about a month later, he asked me to go to Mexico and, and be in the video of the single. And I said, okay, I will dress up as a, a Toltec. <laughs> totally. With gold hair and all. And stand on top of a pyramid. Okay, I'll do that. things you you do
0: for fun you know just by the way it's such a great song and just sort of sort of cool because you know you look back for example in Brian Adams career when he was just you know Brian just some guy uh Lou Graham was in a studio next door and he ended up on on and it's just kind of nice that that uh, artists like yourself like Lou would would embrace these sort of Canadian rookies at the time and say all right I'll, I'll come help you out uh Thousand Hands uh, will be released by Blue Elan Records on 180 uh, gram double vinyl coming out on July 31st. The CD. Just uh, real quick, is the album retouched or remixed or remastered or reimagined? Or is there a fresh coat of paint on it? Or if they were lucky enough to get it last year on your website, anything different about this version?
2: I don't think so. <laughs> it should be the, exactly the same. Um. That's all I know. Well, I, I I I did some artwork and some bottom of my story. So people who get the first uh, thousand albums get this painting that I did plus the story from my memories, my memoirs, and things like that. You know, the little promotional things. You know
0: which is cool I, I I find that cool and uh, here we go last last question uh, it was produced by Michael Franklin um, just what does he bring to the project and also being in the business for, for, for so many years why not just self-produce it uh, and just say hey I know what I'm doing in a studio what, what's the importance of having sort of an outside vision an outside set of ears to look over the album and say uh, hold on um, what did Michael bring to it
2: I think Quite a lot. To me, it was like um, he he wanted to do it, so I just said okay, set up the tapes. I sent him the, the the I had the 24 tracks in my garage, and I sent them to him. And he went through them and printed them up and sent me some of the the the, the work he was doing on it. I was mesmerized. Uh, how good he was and how inventive he was. And then when it came to the final sort of uh, mixing and that, he was very, very uh, open to listen to ideas that I had. And, you know, through the internet, he'd send me a track and I'd listen and go, okay, could you just take uh, the drums up a little bit on this song, please, because Billy Cobham. And I said, I want to really hear everything he does, you know, not the drums sitting back. So they brought it up. And then he put, he put uh, to Korea on, um, come up, and I went, Ugh! oh my gosh, Michael, you're a gem. And that's what happened. You know, it was like a a lovely, like playing tennis in a nice warm afternoon, just having fun, playing tennis with each other, sending ideas to each other. And it turned out to work really well.
0: That's that's a great, great story. Uh, And on that, uh, Mr. Anderson, uh, as we say in Quebec, uh, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. A thousand hands, folks. July 31st, uh, Mr. Anderson. Uh, thank you.
2: Thank you. Wish always, you will.
0: always a pleasure. Let's do this again soon. Sure enough. Bye-bye. Cheers now. Bye-bye.